0: This is Karen Hunter and welcome to the hub. Good everything, Nubians and others. <laughs> oh so, yes. Hey, Dr. Carr said I have a surprise for you. I clicked on. I was like, where you at? <laughs> where are you? You out in the streets. Good
1: morning. <laughs> Good morning how are you professor hunter and everybody and in the listen, world
0: where you are the sun is out birds are chirping it's a little rainy here in the in the tri-state oh, area yeah. of new york but yeah you oh, you have beauty behind you look at that sky
1: oh yeah well as uh lennox Kennett said in birmingham they love the governor <laughs> i'm in the state capital of the settler state known as alabama montgomery you see right down the street from dexter avenue baptist church and uh the uh, the chair incident is probably about 300 yards that way, and right on the riverbank. And behind us is our brother Brian Stevenson's um, Legacy uh, Center and the Legacy Pavilion. I'm sitting on that side of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, and they're getting ready to open an open air um, set of statues and sculptures that's gonna be about three miles from here. So all that's going on right here. So I figured what better place to talk about when oppressed people understand what it means to be assaulted, so and, and it's, we we need to sit with us in a governance space. I said, why not come to Burma? I mean, you, to Montgomery.
0: Listen, <laughs> um, you know, it's been a it's been an interesting. I, I don't even know what words to use. Um, we were on the air when this was uh, happening last week, when uh, Hamas uh, dropped dropped all of the the uh, violence. Uh, on a lot of folk and we were, we, I didn't know that this had happened until we got off. And so for oh. the last, yeah. So for the last few days, you know, like kind of navigating these murky waters that aren't so murky for some of us. And we both teach. So I'm also, you know, navigating this space with my class to have an open conversation because New York, you know, has, uh, yesterday was wild. Um, I have a, a young kid from Haiti and a young woman directly from Dominican Republic. And we had a conversation mm. about Rio yesterday with them sitting next to each other. It was wild. I have uh, an Israeli young lady and a Palestinian in my class and another class. And it was interesting having that conversation as well. And so what I, I decided to do was bring up a map because I feel like um, I remember getting into an argument with a, a woman uh, whose daughter's famous about Egypt not being in Africa. And I was like, <laughs> How, how do you not know? So it was clear to me, I said, you know, before we have a conversation about what's happening, we need to know where everyone sits and what right. is actually going on. Uh, right. So I just want to share my screen a little bit. I don't know if y'all can see this. It's, it's really sm- small here. It's big on my, on my computer. But Egypt is right here, which is in Africa, you know, and then there's Saudi Arabia, there's Jordan, there's Syria up here, Lebanon, and Israel takes up this space. This little tiny space right here that's in green. There are roughly 2 million people, now maybe a million, uh, that are being asked to depart. This little area, buttressed up against the waters, uh, closed in this little tiny area into Egypt. Um, and the uh, half of them, probably more than half, are women and children. Uh, the vast majority of them have nothing to do with what happened on Saturday. Um, right and yet, and yet, um, you know, they're going to be bombed into oblivion this weekend. I have a lot of uh, friends that you do, uh, who have family there. Uh, and you know, uh, one of my buddies said that, you know, I checked in on her. She said, they're saying their goodbyes, you know, they checked in they're waiting to be slaughtered and they're saying their goodbyes. And I'm like, you know, for us, sitting here, you, you raised the question, you know, in a time of war, who do we identify with? And I thought, you know, let's start with the map uh, because with you it's the clock, you know, and if we don't start at the beginning, we can't ever move forward. And so maybe, maybe that's a good place for us to enter this conversation today with maybe pulling that thread back to the beginning of how we got here.
1: Absolutely. Well, I listened to you and Kevin talking pal earlier in the week. And, I mean, you know, first of all, let me just say on behalf of everybody trying to listen that it shouldn't take an act of courage to speak candidly and frankly out of our common humanity. Unfortunately, in the social structure that we find ourselves in now, it, it is received as, a te- as an act of courage. And I want to you know thank you for that because, you know, there, there are a lot of sides in this. I mean, you know, one of the things that I've been asking our students because they have, like you, been asking to talk about this, regardless of the subject that we are to cover for the day, and uh, is who has interests, you know, and who stands with killing? And <laughs> if they do stand with killing, why? How's that even just, then how then we,
0: Dr. Carl? hold on? How is that even a question as the birds are trying to take over the conversation? And I love it. It's making me the, smile because I feel yeah. like
1: <laughs> the birds like, are like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's right.
0: <laughs> I mean, it, it's almost as wild as this, you know, conversation around abortion. I'm like, who's pro killing babies? Like, no, who's like it, it is it's almost insane that we have the language that we're using. I'm hearing Congress people talk about, you know, just level, t- take out all of them and i'm like people you like you want to take out human beings you want to just oh, yeah. are, kill are they people human beings
1: are they people the uh, galant the uh the israeli uh, defense minister said that they were human animals so i mean that's why that's why i don't so get into battle I'm, I'm sorry
0: i'm sorry i'm sorry so no. 2 million a million plus people all of them are human animals who deserve to die is well that, i
1: wouldn't add I, w- 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 this is where it gets difficult right because i mean anything we add to it in terms of interpretation i think one of the things we can do is just let what people say and do be out there and okay. act accordingly so you know whether he says they deserve to die or not he called these people human animals and of course i'm sitting in a city right now montgomery's about two hundred thousand people it's about two-thirds black but this was the place where Jefferson Davis, right down the street. Now I debated going over to the Capitol, but we're gonna come back because one of the reasons I'm here, of course, in addition to some other reasons, one of the reasons I'm here is kind of an advanced scouting tour for, you know, some things we're cooking up and trying to see what would make sense and how to move through the world maybe in 2024, in spring 2024. But uh, we know, of course, this was the place where Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, was sworn into office right down the steps of the Alabama state capitol. This was the first capital of the Confederacy before it moved to Richmond. And when you think about that, all of those Africans who were enslaved in this state, in this city where cotton was king, there's still major banks. I'm looking at PNC. I'm looking at Renaissance, I'm looking at all these major towers at Regions Bank over there. Big town. That's because Montgomery was the place after they had displaced the creek and others, and Andrew Jackson's people, the so-called Indian killers, again, placing indigenous people, that's where uh, the trade, the finance, the banking, the, the, the cotton was here. And I'm saying all that to say that the people who picked that cotton, the people were not considered people. So once you've dehumanized somebody, it's not about getting into a debate on how many were killed here or how many killed there. The number you're putting presumes that everybody looks at people behind those numbers. And once you, you know, declare that someone is not a person and I don't care what side or for what reason people have done that. But when once you've done that, then all bets are off. You're you're exterminating cockroaches or you're you're spaying and neutering pets. They're not me. So when members of Congress say bomb them, I'm saying, okay. so you definitely are not talking about, oh, I don't know your mother, your daughter. You're talking about not a human being. And so, therefore, you are not fit to legislate on behalf of human beings of any political background, because you've decided that some people deserve to die and you're quite willing to use our tax money to do it. And so it's, at that point, you can't can't get mad at them. You just gotta, you know, okay, I heard you and I watch you and now I get to make some decisions on my own, so.
0: I don't know, and and I do know, you know, when I think about the human zoos, you know, I, I had a conversation as I blew up you know, the the area around it. And then I took the entire map of the world and I Africa's in the center. And, And then when I showed them how many the United States, that China, that India, that Russia, that all of Europe can fit inside of this continent of Africa. I asked my students, why did the cartographers for several hundred years make Africa just a little bit bigger than Brazil when it is maybe about five <laughs> times bigger than Brazil? Like why why, why did they make it so almost small in comparison? So I'm asking this question because the narratives, the the way in which media is controlled um, in terms of what gets pushed out, what stories get told, what stories don't get told. And I've said, it's your responsibility, I said to them, as full human beings to tell all of the stories. We have to tell all of the stories so that there's no shaping uh, of a narrative. Africa's the center of the world and it's three to five times larger than any map that we grew up seeing. So why would they diminish it? Why would they diminish it? Why would the cartographers the who are brilliant people diminish right. it? And so right. you know, why do we diminish human beings? so that we can give license to enslaving them for 400 years of putting them, you know, in right. concentration camps, putting them exactly. in, you know, so, so we have to change the narrative. Those of us who have voices, those of us and don't allow for the narratives to continue. Everybody's a person. The, the right. folks that, that killed deserve well, to be handled, right. The, you know, on both sides, right. Not, and it's not like, on, both sides. on, on all
1: sides, on, on all, all sides, because right. this is, there's this no, is being no narrated. Sides, right? Yeah, yeah they, they're narrating it like a sporting event, right? They're keeping tallies right. of numbers. They're saying this versus this. And it's like, you must right. be a fool if you think there are only two sides involved in this. <laughs> there are more sides than you can count. Right. I mean, the Pal- this Palestinian Authority is supposed to be the official governing body for Palestinian people. But as, uh, and there's a brilliant uh, uh, book by a legal scholar um, that, that writes about this. And I'll talk about it in a minute. But what she says is, you know, one of the reasons why the Palestinian Authority doesn't have the kind of uh, cachet with, with rank and file Palestinians, people try to live and die, is because a lot they spend maybe a third of their budget on policing, but it's policing Palestinians. And so it's not pushing back. And then Hamas shows up. These people are not in Hamas or Hezbollah they just trying to feed their children. They're just trying to conserve water and wash as quickly as possible because that water's got to last them for a month. They're just trying to get back and forth through the checkpoints and that kind of thing. But how many sides are involved? Many sides, but this narrative as this versus this, this number versus this number, this number killed versus this number killed. And we're sitting back, okay, because we've been trained in this season of yes. NBA playoffs and Major League yeah. Baseball playoffs to look at this like it's some kind of damn sport. No, people are dying and, and it, sh- it shouldn't matter it's not gonna matter to somebody's family you know the americans with a number of americans are trapped why in the hell would you lead with somebody's passport is a passport an indication of their humanity
0: (laughs) this is the thing uh someone you know i I taught journalism and that's literally in the books right it's proximity it's it's Mm. yeah so we teach you know if you're in america and there's a plane crash in another country you lean into the Americans because that's what we care about here. And I, th- and I stopped teaching that. I mean, for the first 10 years when I was at NYU and then at first 10 years at Hunter, that was, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, your, your, your proximity fame, you know, or notoriety leads. You're going to lead your news stories. If, if the mayor gets in a car accident, you're going to lead with that. If a baby dies in a fire, you're going to leave the baby as opposed uh, to if a firefighter dies, that that's more valuable in terms of how you structure stories. And now I'm thinking about the way in which media uh, journalists are trained to lean into the proximity, you know, because you want to tap into the emotion of the people here. Most people aren't going to care about a million people that died over there. But one person among those million that's from here. Is more valuable in terms of how you structure your stories, and it's insane that we do that.
1: Yeah. Now that I think but about I, it, you're right. We've yeah. been
0: conditioned and trained. Ooh, and I taught that.
1: Well, I mean, well, but but you you just walked us through why it's important narratives. In other words, if we think of ourselves as individuals, as human beings on this planet who are individuals who who ironically had no uh, no part in creating ourselves, it took two people to get us here, but as we look at ourselves as individuals, then yeah, everything's transactional, but well, what does it mean to me? That's why we're always saying, right, for three plus years in moving now, moving toward 190 straight Saturdays, I mean, and and everything else that has blossomed out of this, I mean, narrative and all of the networks and conversations that are going on and the work that is done, we always say, well, who is the we? The we is whoever comes to the table and makes this common call. So, I mean, the way you just laid it out is is very compelling because it's all about stories. What are the stories? And then you know we think about this even in terms of the African states framework. We talk about movement and memory. How did or do African people remember things and move through time and space? Right across the street here is a very powerful uh, memorial pavilion. In fact, this is the we walked over last night. This is the uh, the kind of um, the the brochure, the Legacy Pavilion Memorial. And maybe you know, as we close out today, this is a little close closer close up of the actual Legacy Museum. Uh, we get a little closer, maybe. Uh, walk over and we just take a glance at it but there is a beautiful stone uh, kind of palette a mastaba almost in in ancient Egyptian terms and it has the names of people who were killed who were lynched and where they were lynched and the number of people who were lynched and and the names of the people and there's water running over the top of it similar to the uh, civil rights memorial in Birmingham and I raise it because We even inscribe ourselves in that trauma, in the victimization. uh, You know, very striking images on the building behind me of children getting hit, hit with fire hoses. Very striking images of, you know, The Little Rock Nine and the white people screaming at them. Y'all can't see it in the the distance. Or brothers standing with their backs to the camera in orange jumpsuits because the whole idea is from enslavement to mass incarceration. Or a little boy sitting in a juvenile facility or standing in a juvenile facility over his simple cot in a prison cell. And you can see the red stone there directly behind me. Four regular human beings participating in uh, protests. Maybe it's the Montgomery bus boycott. This is the city where for over a year they, they protested. But again, we have to be careful because those stories reinforce a series of narratives and expectations, a victimhood of sorts. And yes, we're talking about, you know, from slavery to the traumas to triumph. But if you start with, this, with, the, with the slavery, if you start with the, the trauma, then we find ourselves with a challenge. And, you know, this is Thursday's New York Times. And here's Brother Stevenson uh, sitting uh, in front of a structure that was lived in by formerly enslaved people. This is going to be part of what they're calling the Freedom Monument Sculpture Park in Montgomery Uh, here. This is going to open up about three miles from here. There are three sites. There's the center. There is the uh, outdoor reflection uh, place, which is about. Uh, another three miles in the other direction, which is what a lot of people know with the statuary of, of enslaved people. And, and then there's this sprawling centerpiece of uh, what's going to open, this outdoor sculpture park, Forty, a uh, 43 foot tall, 150 foot long wall, angled like an open book, and inscribed with more than 120,000 distinct surnames documented in the 1870 census. It'll be almost 50 uh, sculptures by 27 artists. Uh, these are names that folks who are into African art, Africana art, people from the diaspora and from the continent will know. Uh, Wangechi Mutu, Theaster Gates, Rashid Johnson, Kehinde Wiley, among many others. Um, but I- I'm raising all this to say that uh, the inscription of our humanity from a deficit, it makes it very nearly, um, let me not say very nearly impossible, nothing is impossible, but it makes it hard for us to then imagine people in their full humanity, because they come to us narrated as less than human. So even the Palestinians, we talk about the Palestinians. One of the challenges is that there is no Palestine in the legal framework that Israel or the world acknowledges, even though there have been UN resolutions, there have been treaties, there have been a number of things, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but I I want to remind it of a quote by uh, Ehud Barak, the former uh the former israeli prime minister who said you know if and as long as between jordan as you showed on that map and the sea meaning the mediterranean sea there's only one political entity named israel it will end up being either not jewish because think about it now, demographically they're predicting that palestinians would be the majority in that if you just go from jordan all the way up to the to the mediterranean say, this is israel there's no recognized Palestine." in the framework. They say Palestinians, but these people, whether it be the West Bank, whether it be Gaza Strip, whether it be the camp, you know, they're not recognizing. He, Barak, I mean, uh, Barack says either there will be, uh, it'll either be uh, non-Jewish, meaning non-majority Jewish, or non-democratic. He said if the Palestinians vote in elections, it is a bi-national state. Meaning what? We can't control them. They can't control us. And there are those like perhaps in Hamas and Hezbollah who said, we don't want no Jews. And, and again, this this thing is so deep because they've been narrated that way. And he says, if they don't vote, it's an apartheid state. And of all people, the 99 year old Jimmy Carter got jumped on when he wrote a book called Peace, Not Apartheid. He said, all right, all right, hold on, hold on. The Prime Minister of Israel himself said, if you let everybody participate, it's either going to be an apartheid. Or it's going to be a non-majority Jewish state or you got to not let them vote. And sitting here in Montgomery, which in many ways was the flashpoint of the modern civil rights movement, the whole idea is, well, let us participate. But you're in a state and in a country where the fear is, if I let everybody participate, I'm not going to be able to advance my interests, whatever those interests are. But it all starts with the stories, as you've just laid out. Once you've been socializing those stories, how in the hell do you invite everybody into building something once they've been told and reinforced the exactly what you said? Well, baby is more important than this. A firefighter is more important than this. Somebody who's an American is more important than what. Well, so how you gonna build a community? You're coming in with a story about somebody in like you said, that classroom you narr, you just described, the one in there in New York, the 100 colleges, you're having these conversations. There are people who probably heard the pairings that you just narrated, an Israeli and a Palestinian, a Haitian and a Dominican, and automatically stopped listening. As if these people couldn't talk to each other. Oh. But you didn't go in with a story. Go ahead, please tell us
0: something. You know what I'm saying? It was actually beautiful. It was actually beautiful. Mm. You know, these these students of mine have a level of humanity that they can see each other. And the Haitian brother was talking about, you know, how because I said, you know, we've been taught to hate people. I, I even, you know, I, I was curious when when I started on, on the radio at Sirius XM, Mike Brown had been killed that day, that that week. And I remember getting these angry calls from folk that don't have melanin, you know, saying, well, he was he was doing this and that. I said, but he, he didn't have a weapon. Well, he could have, I was like, did he deserve to die? He was 18. Young people, have you never, never stolen anything? Let, let's go down the line. Maybe he stole the cigarellos, turned over the thing. Maybe he's horrible. Maybe he was a horrible teenager. Hmm. He deserved to yeah, die. Right. In that moment, I realized they didn't see him the way I saw him. As exactly. an 18-year-old boy that could have been my son that you know did something stupid, but did he deserve to die? And that was my question. And, and people were so furious at me you know, at at him, that they demonized him the way they demonized Trayvon Martin the way they demonized. I'm thinking about Elijah McClain, who uh, juried this Mm. week, um, convicted one of the officers. And I remember him saying, I'm different. You know, I'm just, I'm just, why are you doing this to me? And I'm like, looking at this sweet young man, like y'all don't see him. Y'all don't see him as a, as a young, fragile, you know, different, different behaving, you know, clearly whatever he was doing wasn't harmful. He didn't have any, any weapons like, so he deserved to die, you know, and, and that there are people, a lot of people, some of them in Congress, some of them were president (laughs) who don't see, and, and, and that we have the capacity to see all people, some of us, but the, the danger is some of us are doing the same exact thing in reverse. Right. And, And you can't give up your humanity in this fight. At any point, no. you give up your humanity in this fight. You have to be able to no. see all people. And so it's a beautiful thing that I feel like, you know, I've let, left space for my students to be able to communicate and, and have these conversations. And the Haitian kid admitted, I grew up really hating Dominicans because of what Trujillo did to my people. And yes. the young lady in the class didn't even really know that history, even though she's straight exactly. from the Dominican Republic. So it's like we have to teach, we have to know, we have to look at the map, we have to see where this conflict started, and then we have to see each other as people worthy of life because I was explaining to them, I'm sure uh, those kids in the outdoor festival, one didn't even tell her mother that she was going because she didn't want her to worry, got snatched. That family is distraught right now. No question. One seeing their daughter with a bloody back of her pants or one without her pants at all being snatched. The babies that have been snatched. Yeah, like if you snatch my mama in in a wheelchair, we fighting forever. And there's no one,
1: you
0: you know, and God forbid you kill her. That story is passed down from generation to generation. And I'm coming for you.
1: Forever. 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 And and, and you don't stop. If you you don't stop Hamas by bombing everybody. In fact, you have now ensured there's going to be more people. And it's not even gonna be called Hamas. You killed my mother, so forever I am against you. Now, not only, now I'm not gonna be against you forever, I'm gonna make sure I kill you at some point. And, I mean, and, then you, and then, you, or then, you, then you back map that for centuries? And, 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 and then you erase the memory? You erase the memory of when this at each other's throats was not the case. You erase the eight centuries of Muslims in the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal, of a Jewish minority and will become Spain and Portugal. You erase all that. And then you teach your children from elementary school in the United States and other places about the Crusades. And you set up Christian nationalists. And then you wanna know why they're Christian nationalists because you've trained them all with Christian soldiers. You know, you throw the rock and hide your hand. Hello, Great Britain. Hello, England. Hello, Great Britain. You, You throw the rock and hide your hand. After years of uh, declaring people stateless, the Jews, whatever that means. Are you talking about the better Israel, the Fallatian Jews? Are you talking about the Askenazim, like Golden Meir and others? No, you just say the Jews, whatever the hell that means. And then you're beef with the Muslims through the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th centuries. We are beef with the Muslims through the 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th centuries. You somehow draw these people in and you lump them along with the Roma and other people who you might call stateless as some kind of threat to your expanding empire. You know, young people uh, this past week, they were asking me, well, Dr. Carr, where does it start? And I said, well, it starts with human beings. He said, no, but where does this start? I said, well, it doesn't start in 1947 or 48. I said to my Howard students, you're on a campus but there's a building named for Ralph Johnson Bunch who believed in self-determination, who worked for that, who worked for it when he worked for the State Department, who worked for it when he was a political science professor at Howard University, who worked for it when he was at the UN, as Kyle Rastiala says in his massive new book that you know, I interviewed Kyle Rastiala a few uh, few months ago. And, uh, you know, and, you know, we've talked to him, you know, the most indispensable man. You know, Bunch ends up negotiating, leading the negotiations of what becomes the state of Israel because the guy in front of him at the UN gets blown up gets assassinated there trying to work something out but I'm saying I'm saying all that to say that it doesn't start in 1948. it doesn't start in 1917 with the Balfour uh, agreement. And of course we talked about all this in office hours Nubians you all know and you've seen it a million times. you can look at the basic history if you just want numbers from recent history. it doesn't start with the end of World War one. With the British quote unquote protectorate named Palestine is seen as a safety valve to offshore these people who you've been demonizing for centuries in Europe, the Jews, whatever the hell that means. Jewish people in all of the st- countries.
0: Oh, oh, my <laughs> you know saying? even the world ghetto comes out of Italy, right? That was the first come on. Hitler. It's like, it's like, we, have we forgotten, first of all, yes. uh, great Britain control Kenya, Uganda. Palestine—that people got in a room and decided to, to just like they divvied up Africa—and—and and now yes. those people are fighting each other while, like you said, they sit their tea and eat their scones. Nothing to see here. No we hey, got rid slavery first. Hey, 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 hey. Nothing to see here.
1: Whew. Exactly. Right. Nothing, nothing to see here. I mean, but but it's a, but that's an important point because something emerges in that late nineteenth and early twentieth century that we have to consider. This, 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 earth, this recent condition in, in the social structure we live in now of the nation state, the state system, which is basically when you invade where other people are living, settler colonialism, as I sit here in Montgomery, as I say, you put the creek out, the trail of tears runs straight through Alabama, all the way to Oklahoma and beyond. As you've done that, you then fill it with imagined communities as Benedict Anderson and so many have written over the years. And these imagined communities are tied together by violence. And so, as you say, I mean, World War I and World War II, this intra-European beef. I said, you know, if you take AP world history, maybe you should call it AP European beef. That should be the history, 100 years war, 30 years war, World War I, World War II, Napoleon at Waterloo, what's Hitler doing? All these people pushing back against each other, the Norman conquest, you know, here comes. But I'm saying all that to say that ultimately, by the late 19th century, you've got people who have been ghettoized in many places in Western Eurasia and Europe, who have chosen a way of knowing that links them to an, a, a much older tradition, one that was not started, ironically, by people who are descended from the people who live where they live, namely Judaism, which is, of course, the first of three ways of knowing that come out of the same African context as you showed that map. That's Africa we're looking at, Suez Canal being dug in the 1860s notwithstanding, 1850s notwithstanding. You've got these Abrahamic traditions, judaism christianity and islam and you know one of my points of entry with young people this uh, this week was to start with what they know we both know that all of us who are teachers know that sometimes with, with students you have to start with what they know and i said uh you know how many of y'all know this song Jesus can't work it out you let him I said yeah that's up. your hands went up okay every problem that I have I have could not remember that verse in there on uh, Abraham 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 in the bush you'll see a ram what was abraham out there to do Isaac was the only son Isaac Abraham and Isaac who was abraham's wife Yes. Okay. We got some Sunday school students in here. Sarah. Oh, Sarah. Okay. I thought Sarah couldn't have no children. No, but God, she prayed and got, okay. gave her Isaac. So he was ready to sacrifice Isaac. Mm -hmm. So that's the only kid Abraham had, right? No, no. Hagar had a child. Wait, he had more than one. We're talking about that another day. Who was Hagar's child? Oh, that was Ishmael. Well, guess in, this, in Islamic genealogy, who is seen as the father of Islam in that sense, through the bloodline, put it on Abraham, the Abrahamic traditions. And so when you start talking about beef, a great deal of it comes to stories, as you said, as a, as a narrator, as a storyteller. And, and once you've hardened into that, there's no escape route. But you, you, you set yourself up as the standard for being human in Western Eurasia, the Catholic church, And then you say, I'm against these less than humans, the Muslims, the Jews, whatever that means, the Roma, which you you slur and call them gypsies, and these stateless people who come to uh, be pushed out of places or despised or uh, derided. And of course, we see that all come to a head in the third and fourth decades of the so-called 20th century with the Holocaust. And we talk about, you know, people being excoriated and saying, oh, you're anti-Semitic. Really? Were those black soldiers, those black soldiers like my father and uncle's generation and your father's and and uncle's and auntie's generation, uh, uh, Professor Hunter, those soldiers who walked into Dachau, who walked into Auschwitz, who walked into those death camps in Germany, who were of African descent. And who Holocaust survivors, Jewish Holocaust survivors say the first face I saw in an American uniform was a black face. When you see that, uh, were they anti-Semitic? No, they were not. These are stories that hardened. And so, you know, by the time the British decide to offload what they see as a challenge and a problem, oh, in America, you don't get off. You know, lucky Lindy's plane is in the National Museum of Air and, and, and Space and uh, Air and Space Museum in, in Washington, D.C. But Charles Lindbergh, straight fascist, you know, America first fascist. What was your opinion of the, the Jews? The man oh. whose name is on. T- <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> so, hey.
0: You don't even have to go back that far. The Nuremberg Laws crafted on Jim Crow laws, period. Come that on was now. You even got the, the Nuremberg Laws, and that final solution came straight from. The United States of America,
1: United States of America, Hitler's Hitler's uh, Hitler's American model. That recent book that writes uh, that tells all of it, right? And of course, uh, a name that is on many of these cars going up and down the streets here on Court Street in Montgomery, Alabama. That would be Ford. Who writes the international Jew, the world's foremost problem, the protocols of Zion? All of this propaganda against these people. What is their crime? Their crime is that you have built your concept of humanity on excluding them. And then okay, these people are looking for help. You know, their their ship, the famous incident of the ship turned around. The United States said, y'all can't come here. This kind of thing then congeals into a hatred. But now you've got problems because, you know, there's a book Robert Roswell wrote wrote called African Zion. It's very important. Good morning, brother. How you feel? All right, so uh, African Zion, where he talks about, you know, the British, Trying to make a pitch to the World Jewish Congress to say, well, you know We could give you all a place to go. Well, where is that? Well, we proposed Kenya wait, What? Why Kenya? Well, maybe the Garden of Eden was there well, no, wait, wait. And we talked about that in the of hours last night I showed people the book African Zion Robert Rosberg's book and ultimately they like "No, we don't want to go there But what's emerging in the late 19th century is a movement to create a physical place, a country, where the Jews, whatever that means, can go. Now, are are the Ethiopian Jews sitting at the table? No, not initially. This is coming out of Western Eurasia, coming out of Europe, Theodore Herzl and all that. And And I'm saying that because, you know, today we didn't want to go into a deep dive into the history of this conflict as much as we wanted to really ask this question. In a war, in a time of war, you know, who do we identify with? If we identify with each other in our common humanity, we can perhaps see a glimmer of challenges. Because remember, before World War I, this Zionist movement looking for a homeland, so to speak, there are people in the Zionist movement who are like, I'm against all Muslims. There are people in the Zionist movement who are saying, I'm not against anybody, I'm just looking for a place where I don't get beat up every day. And then there are other people who are not part of that way of knowing, that Jewish way of knowing, that Abrahamic faith tradition, one of three, who would say, hey, I what they want, which is what? Autonomy, self-determination, sovereignty as a people. What is a people? This is direct birth of the so-called nation state, which is why you can fuel settler colonialism on these narratives of lies. There's no such thing as an American culture. There's a lot of different people here, but in a settler colony, you pair everybody else's story or you Create everybody else's story after you created your own Christopher Columbus, the pilgrims, after you created your own the founding fathers, manifest destiny, after you created your own. And so you can have a cold-blooded murderer like Andrew Jackson pass through this place I'm sitting right now and drive human beings from one side of the continent all the way to the middle of the continent and call himself the Indian killer and be shipped in this region by the people who identify with him. But after you've done all that and you find yourself in a position that is increasingly fragile. Because see, once you do that to people, they start making their story based on your story. And so when you, you know, in, in the case of, of what happened, of course, with Israel, you've got a situation where you've beaten back Germany in the latest round of European beef. In this century of European beef, Germany has risen. Okay, you beat them back in World War I, you come back for the rematch. But between World War I and World War II, you have Beaten back the old Ottoman Empire and, and these people who we call Palestinians are living in the Ottoman Empire they ain't getting no love either so they're living in what is now a British protectorate and so you say these people who you call the Jews whatever that is okay well y'all didn't want Kenya okay now we're talking about the 1918 all the way up to 1930s who by the way if we talk about Africana studies framework in our governance category who are Africans to each other who has emerged during that period Marcus Garvey. And Marcus Garvey is looking at the Zionist movement. Marcus Garvey says, well, you know, as Palestine for the Jew, so Africa for the Africans, those at home and those abroad. People don't understand, Garvey, wait, Garvey? Oh, wait, you're looking at what's going on in Palestine as a, as a model for you, and we need a homeland too. But the nation state has become the villain of the peace. You're identifying people with their geographic origin and then you draw these imaginary lines around it. You say, that's a country, that's a country, that's a country, but you never say that for the Palestinians who are there and the people who are Jewish, who you are saying could go there and create a country, you are setting them up for a beef that will never end. And so now they're all in there and you're encouraging them to come, you're encouraging them to come. And then after the Holocaust in, in Germany, the world's sympathy are with these people And what do you do? You form the United Nations because now that you've beaten Germany back, you want to make sure they don't ever come back. And you don't like some of these fascist tendencies, but you also like control. So you come to the table, Great Britain. You come to the table, United States. You can't tell the Russians not to come. They lost the most people in World War II fighting Hitler. So they're at the table, too. Chinese are around, coming up, reemerging. And so you create this United Nations. You want all the countries in the world to be in the United Nations, but you don't want all the countries in the world to have control in the United Nations. So you create Israel in 1947. In 1948, in 1948, when you look at, you know, you, you talk to the people in who are Palestinian and they'll tell you about the Nakba. They'll tell you about, you know, 1948, people come and saying, This mine. But I was living here. No, you don't exist as a people, you know. And so what how do these how how am I gonna get put out of my house? How am I gonna put off my land? How am I gonna get, it? and those resentments never go away. Imagine somebody come in your house and take your house and say, I'm authorized to take your house. And then you appeal to the world and the world says, yeah, that was wrong, but they don't back you. What does that mean? They don't back up that that was wrong with force, with an ability to prevent you from being harmed. Well, those resentments are not only gonna linger, linger, they're gonna fester. And so 1948, this conflict, the al Nakba. The catastrophe, people are saying, you've taken my stuff and Israel is formed. but Israel hasn't known peace since that moment. You set these people up and it isn't everybody in the world who is Jewish trying to go to Israel. There's real internal debate and conversation fast forward to where we are right now. Some of these things should scare the hell out of us in terms of debate and conversation. It should scare the hell out of us. Uh, News in today's New York Times, the University of Pennsylvania had a literary conference and the literary conference uh, involved conversations about Palestinian artists. And so what happens? A major donor has given 50 million dollars so far or more to the University of Pennsylvania calls for the resignation of the president of the University of Pennsylvania and the chair of the board of the University of Pennsylvania. One of the people who spoke at the conference was Martin Lamont Hill, our friend and brother Martin Lamont Hill. Oh, no. The, t- the Times says, Martin Monthill, Hill, who was fired from CNN, Martin Monthill Hill has spent a whole lot of time in that region of the world, speaks Arabic, studied the Palestinian people, has written about it. But here's a problem. Can not have a conversation that people who have interests other than that? And this is a conspiracy theory. This is simply stating the fact that if you say, well, let's have a conversation or somebody says, I stand with Palestine. Oh, you can't say that. I mean, uh, you know, but what does that mean? I mean, ask the young sister at New York University, uh, Rhina Workman, who was the president of the, is the president of the NYU Student Bar Association. This young uh, student, black, uh, made a statement of solidarity with Palestine, said, Bl- I blame everything on Israel. Now, I mean, yeah, that's gonna be automatically met with a violent reaction, so violent in her case, in, in their case, I think she's not binary in their case, Uh, Winston and Strong, which was the law firm that had offered her a job, withdrew their offer. And she had a job, a young person. Let's go a little bit further in terms of age. The president of Harvard University, Claudia Gay, the new president, black woman from the Caribbean. Her people are from the Caribbean. Claudia Gay uh, is seen as giving a statement that isn't sufficiently supportive of Israel. So Lawrence Summer, the blustering former secretary of the Treasury under Barack Obama, Summer comes out and criticizes her and says, this is unacceptable and goes after her ham. Bruh, what you doing, man? What you doing? Hey, listen, I'm not mad at Lawrence Summers. I'm not mad at Lawrence Summers because my question, again, when I ask the students, I say, you know, what is the interest? What is the interest in this? And so meanwhile, while all this debate is going back and forth and people are being punished and people are all on social media or on television. And, you know, I don't know if you saw the report, Prof. I have not taking the time to confirm. I just saw it on social media about four o'clock this morning as I was sitting. There. One of the things about being in the South, and I love the South. I make no pretensions about it. I was born in the South. My mother is from this state. My mother's from right down the street. I got up this morning and saw these uh, uh, crimson and gold-clad clad Negroes and they Tuskegee, it's Tuskegee's homecoming. If you think I ain't gonna be under the shed in a couple of hours singing ball and parlay with the Golden Tiger Band, you wrong about that. If I live, I'm gonna be in Tuskegee, Alabama, not even 45 minutes from right here because my mama People And then at some point, I'm trying to go by the little Provident Baptist Church graveyard and go pay respect to my grandmother and grandfather who are buried there. And Malcolm and I and cousins who are out there in that cemetery. But I love the South. I ain't got no problem with that. But about three or four o'clock in the morning, you know, I'm up and, you know, it's like, you know, thinking about this, thinking about the fact that, you know, we're in a moment when people are, you know, it, 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 it doesn't matter your intent. lines have been drawn and people making choices but i wasn't able to confirm this prof uh i know your friend and i heard you all uh you and kevin talking with him Ali of um they said something about people being shuffled in the rotation on being anchors on msnbc and some of the the arab uh anchors uh have been is that did you see that i haven't
0: you know you know i don't watch cable news period um
1: true but I know in, in Ali's case though, smart and many her son. I mean, you love,
0: know, I love Ali Belchi. Um not just smart, just has lived and traveled and knows some things coming out of South Africa. This is not somebody coming into Facts. Toronto. One of the, the most you know enlightening things that he he brought last couple of weeks ago was the building of Toronto coming with yes. immigrants. And I yes. was like, that makes so much <laughs> sense. He said it was a potluck town when we came from South Africa, fleeing apartheid. And they opened the borders because they said these people are valuable and built Toronto. And it is now rivaling any you know, amazing city in the world because of the immigrants. And I was like, yes, that doesn't seem like a, a problem. Why don't we do this? And you're you're sitting here right now. Um, and I don't know that they've been removed. He, Mehdi, um, Mehdi Hassan. And I forgot the third brother's name. OK, uh, OK.
1: So you saw the same thing I did. OK, six, OK.
0: Three have been removed. Um, and by the way, Lawrence Sumner, Summers used to be uh, president of Harvard, too. So I guess maybe he's looking at his territory. That's his territory. She's. Just oh, busy. yeah.
1: What's Baby a black girl. woman doing in my seat? That's true. That's <laughs> that's true.
0: <laughs> you behave and, and, and follow this line here. Um, but, you know, as well. And, and again, I never considered until you said it earlier, early, early on that if the vote is handed out equally if everyone had rights then it may not be a jewish state it may not and i think about america that's why they fight so hard to gerrymander to suppress your vote to give you Come sexy, on. Race, Come to on tell you to this person to bring Come all of this different stuff in because as long as we vote we got the numbers and when i say we i'm talking about human beings that care about human beings period yes yes about. and i was like that's wild so that power Ooh, is such a drug that they want to not just suppress and demonize, but they will kill you. They will we'll kill, kill you. you. Do not and I'm, I'm amazed. How are you going to kill
1: people by the thousands? I mean, we're watching this video, and you're watching whole apartment complexes being pancaked. And people are saying, okay, we're fighting Hamas. Okay, I get that. I get that. Of course. What I don't get is indiscriminate bombing, there's no surgical strike. You can say surgery was right at your mouth, but we're watching the explosions. Uh, all right.
0: but I, I will, I will say Hiroshima, and Nagasaki. I will also Absolutely. say Megar Evers, right? So th- this That's this right. tactic is not is not new. And when I said what I said, I wasn't even thinking, you know, about what's what's going on right now. I was thinking historically, like, Absolutely. Oh wow. So this has always constantly been the plan: demonize Ehrlichman. Let's demonize the anti-war. Let's demonize the blacks. That's They're right. our enemy. They're our enemy. And right. like, How are black people and folks that don't want you to go to war in Vietnam, your enemy. The enemies of, of Nixon, Reagan's like ah, war on drugs. Mm. Right, Willie right. Horton. You know, it's like wow. That's and we right. for the okie doke. That's we're right. Like a
1: well, I mean, it's so funny, the EGAI calendar, you know, the uh, Equal Justice Institute, Brian Stevenson's organization, they, they do a calendar, they have a website. If you go to the EGAI Institute's uh, website today, they mark October 14th as the day when uh, the man that you just mentioned, Ronald Wilson Reagan, uh, escalates the so-called war on drugs. Again, you know, it's not a war on drugs, it's a war on people. It's a war on people who are addicted. And as you said, I mean, if you let everybody participate, if you encourage everyone to participate, it becomes a problem. You know, there's a reason for the Selma, which is right down the street from here, to Montgomery right here, March. And as standing on the steps of that Capitol right over there, that same place where Dixie was played for the first time in public, where Jefferson Davis was sworn in as the president of Confederacy, you know, two blocks from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, and of course, you know, Dexter Avenue is named for one of the white supremacists, uh, Andrew Dexter, who proposed to move the capital of Alabama from Tuscaloosa, roll tide, to Montgomery, right there. Dr. Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King, who visited the camps in East Jerusalem the ghettos of East Jerusalem, Palestinian communities who visited that, who came back right down this street right here, not even two blocks from the steps where he said, no lie can live forever. How long? Not long. No lie can live forever to the end of the Selma to Montgomery March. But in 1959, Martin Coretta King, our, the pastor and first lady of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and Martin King, having come back from Israel, having come back from meeting with the Palestinians, in 1959, Martin Luther King gives a sermon right here at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church where he talks about the, what does he call it? A walk through the holy Land, And he is agonizing over this for the rest of his life. What to do with these oppressed people? With these oppressed people, because I saw them for myself. And he's not alone. We're gonna talk in a minute. In fact, I'll start talking about it now. Black Power in Palestine. It's a book that, you know, I've mentioned before. I didn't bring my physical copy. Uh, today, but it's a book um, that I encourage everyone to read: Black Power and Palestine. Michael Fishbach, F I S C H B A C H. Michael Fishbach. It was published in 2019 by Stanford University Press. I don't know what's going on at Stanford University because Stanford also published the the book I mentioned a minute ago that I said I would come back to just briefly, and that is a Noura um, Erakat book. Nura is a E R A K A T. Noura is N O U R. A Nora Erekat's book, Justice for Some, 2019 as well. Uh, she's a lawyer, a scholar, has worked very deeply in international law, and she says, you know, there's no sovereign and independent pa- uh, Palestine, no Palestinian state that is recognized. This is after years of study and years of international law and transaction. but there are frameworks. You know, when you start talking about the West Bank, you're talking about over 20 non-contiguous land masses which are closed off by checkpoints and you got a separating wall that started going up in the early arts and you see these people are separated from each other. they've been referred to as Bantu but the people who are doing the separating are in fear for a number of things. they're fearful that they'll be attacked, they'll fearful for that they'll be bombed. and so we start immediately we're looking with a sports analogy to look to, to pick sides. Hold on there's many sides in this. But what uh, Eric Erakat writes about is that you can use the law to advance a political agenda because all the law is is politics. So if you think that just having a declaration or a law in place the united nations has said you know there's a right for palestinian self-determination they passed a resolution that said zionism was racism and of course the united states and israel lost their minds and pushed back but at the same time other people said no you can't justify this because this is an apartheid state hell even the former president of the united states jimmy carter is saying that and then the former prime minister of israel as i said said if you let everybody vote we won't be a jewish state and say "But, but would you be a state where human beings could debate and discuss and move together and then you introduce another side here's a side that's completely one side bb netanyahu i'm going on trial they talk about i'm corrupt they tell me okay well they're in this war we're going to suspend all domestic debate you got people in israel because everybody over 18 you got to join the military, you you part of the military. Okay, well, we can deploy 30,000 to go and we're gonna march through Gaza, we're gonna be a ground invasion. Okay, I don't wanna go. Well, I'm a Jew, observant Jew, I'm an Israeli, but damn it, I don't think, oh no, well, you going to jail. You can't control, you can't control everybody, BB. And, and when this thing cycles out of this flashpoint of death that it's in right now, and the courts are up and running again, you may still go to jail, son out here may still go to jail and that ain't got nothing to do with semitism or anti-semitism and the linguistic scholars will tell you the arabic and hebrew come out the same route linguistically but again when we say anti uh when, when the words anti-semit semite or anti-semitism are used they're not being used in the way that the linguists would use them they're being used as political terms and as uh, professor ericott writes she says we talk about the law the law has a dimension that is political and it operates in a political field so when you start talking about politics you can ask yourself a question even if you've got a law that says people have a right to exist and if you're going to start talking about sovereignty and self-determination if you're going to keep the nation state as a construct they have a right to be self-determining within those nation-state boundaries so when Ralph Bunche and them are negotiating what might be proposed or characterized as a two-state solution well, yeah, you can say that on paper, but now you got to do it. And I'm sitting in a city in a state where in 19 or 1901 is when they rewrote the Alabama constitution and Jim and Jane Crow, us apartheid became the law of the land after reconstruction. And then a couple of years later, about three years later the Supreme court heard a voting rights case called Giles versus Alabama. And in that case, Oliver Wendell Holmes writing for the majority is like, yeah, you know, it is racist, but it's really politics. It's a political act. That's how the Supreme Court today, the great, 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 great grandchildren of those white nationalists of the 19th century and early 20th century, John John, John Boy Roberts and Beer Cavanaugh, Sam Alito, and their friends, uh, Clarence Thomas, C.T. Are you with me? They are saying the same thing. We can't get involved in political cases. So right here, you know, as I said this afternoon, I'm gonna be in the heart of the Black Belt. Shout out to Terry Sewell and all of them, who will be joined in the federal legislature if this rewritten map has to, uh, it it works its magic by another person of African descent. This Supreme Court almost sounds like the Giles versus Alabama Court of a century and a quarter ago in saying that these are political issues. Yes, they may have an aerial impact, but they're political issues. And we can't get involved in political issues, but sometimes you can be so racist that even they have to admit, which is what the Supreme Court has done in Alabama, which they we hope they will do uh, as it relates to Louisiana. We just heard the Alexander versus the uh, Branches of the NAACP in South Carolina case was argued earlier this week by the by the stalwart lawyers of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and the court seems inclined to reject the idea that uh, what's the what's the um, the woman the white congresswoman that wore the scarlet letter, thereby proving she must not have read ever read. Uh, Scarlet Letter. I'm, I know I know as an English uh, scholar and, and major that you, you got a particular kick out of it. Oh na- was it Nancy God. Grace? Is that her name?
0: I don't even give a damn <laughs> what her name is. I was like, you are the most ignorant. She did it with her full chest. Literally with her full whole chest. I said, um uh so someone said, tell <laughs> us you've never read the Scarlet Letter without actually telling us you never read the Scarlet Le- Letter. She's
1: so embarrassing.
0: It's so embarrassing. Uh, it's so no embarrassing.
1: Hester Prynne would be mortified. Maybe even Reverend Demsdale. But again, those memories are in our mind because they don't let us, they don't allow us to read the ancient Egyptians or Sundiata or any of that. We all know Hester Prynne because we had to read the Scarlet Letter, except Nancy, whatever her name is, uh, Mace, I think. But the point is that, that the Republican Party in South Carolina moved as many black voters as they could out of her district into Jim Clyburn's district. And the Supreme Court said, well, it was political. It wasn't racial but giles versus alabama 1903 i think it was in 1904 holmes is like yeah this is political we're not going to get involved in it and then he says i think about that in terms of derrick bell who made this point over and over again about Giles versus harris well Giles versus harris is the case the alabama case he says he says um you know even if that's the law you got to be able to enforce it and so what he's basically saying is white supremacists run the state of alabama even if we were to say that this is the law, it could be enforced because they are the law. The law is whatever they say it is, harkens back to the days of the so-called Indian killer, Andrew Jackson, who when the court said you can't, the Indian Removal Act is unconstitutional, he was like, yeah, okay, now uh, enforce it. And he continues to drive the creek and the Chickasaw. He continues to drive the people through this, quote unquote, state on out west. And I'm saying not to say in the case of Palestine, in the case of the Palestinians, you're faced with a thing, well, we got a U.N. resolution that says this. We have, you know, uh, international law mandate that says this. Well, as Nura Ekerat, Ekerat says in her book, Justice for Some, she said, you can have all the law on your side in the world, but you can't stop nobody. Which is why when Hamas bombs these people who were at a music a concert and they say, well, you know, you at a music concert, but that used to be our territory, and we want you. Okay, you want all the people over there killed, huh? Well, truth be told, yeah, I do want. Okay, okay, chief, this killing got to stop. And then the Israelis say, well, in instance of national security, we just gonna bomb everybody. Wait, what? We're trying to bomb Hamas, but you know, we are gonna tell a third of the people who live over there, you got to get out of the north part of your. Wait, what are you doing? What are you doing, chief? What you, you can't, you can't. We can do what you gonna stop us. Who gonna check us, boo damn sure? Not the United States of America. Why? Because they pay for the moms your tax dollars at work. And so, like with Giles versus Harris, as was the case then. So, in this case, the parallel is this the law can be written, but the law is influenced by politics, and politics can always change a condition. So, you would think, you know, in a case like Neuro Eric That you might think, well, that's depressing. Nothing's going to change. Her point is the exact opposite. Human beings can change any framework we want if there is a critical mass of human beings willing to do that. And that's very important to understand. So, you know, just a couple more things and then we'll, you know, kind of wrap up for the day. So, um, you know, as I said, Black Power of Palestine. How you doing, bro? to see you. Black, uh, black power in Palestine is, well, you know, we're in the South, so everybody got to speak. That's very important. <laughs> very important. And it's good to see you, brothers and sisters. Again, we are literally a few steps uh, from where uh, the white folding chair made its debut this summer. And it, I can't tell you, it's inspirational. We were walking around last right. night and you'll see regular ass black people. Prof, I can't tell you, that is the source of our joy, of our hope. It's the source of our inspiration. It's the source of our frustration. It's so but when you see regular black, how y'all doing? Hey, how y'all doing? Okay. These are the Negroes that if somebody comes for you, they going to shut that down quickly. These are not the Negroes who are going in the room to act with uh, decorum and, and speak softly and negotiate. Now these are the Negroes that, Hey man, he just jumped on your cousin. No problem. Let's get busy. <laughs> so, these are the people you want in your, in, in your corner. Um, but in black power versus in Palestine. In uh, Michael Fishbach's book. It's very important because he talks about, and this is something I think we need to understand in terms of our africana states framework, he talks about the relationship of African people in the United States and the Palestinian struggle and Israel, the Israeli struggle. It's very interesting. Uh, he starts, he talks about the Arab-Israeli conflict in the 1960s. This is after the 1967 war so-called six-day war. And then we see, of course, in 1973, you see a fight between Israel and the surrounding Arab states. You know, we just came back from Egypt the grave of Anwar Sadat, who was assassinated, of course, Anwar Sadat, who was assassinated by members of the Egyptian military because they said, you made peace with the Israelis at Camp David. I mean, so again, there are more than one side in this. There are many sides in this, but you know, that is narrated as a triumph in 1973, the war pushing Israel back, but at the same time, trying to make peace is considered an act of treason. Even as we are in 2023 uh, developments this week, we see that the Iran, uh, the head of Iran is meeting with the Saudi head, with the crown prince. It's what the hell is going on? Hey, man, I know we don't get along, but uh, we need to talk. And here go Anthony Blinken, the United States Secretary of Defense, hopping around the region. He's in Cairo. He didn't go talk to the Saudis. Why? Because we got to we got to. It's a lot of sides involved in this. But once this killing has reached such a fever pitch, nobody is safe. We just came back from Egypt Two Israeli tourists and their Egyptian tour guide were killed by an Egyptian policeman early this week. What the hell is going on? You can't keep everybody safe if everybody's at everybody's throat and the narratives are treating this like a sporting event. But in Black Power of Palestine, what Professor Fishback does is go and talk about this Arab-Israeli conflict. He starts in the 60s and he talks about positions on the conflict being what he calls a fault line. Where you line up on it is supposed to dictate your politics and how you should be dealt with by the social structure. I'm talking about black organizations. He says there's a line between the "quote unquote" traditional black organizations, and he writes about the NAACP and Roy Wilkins, the National Urban League, and Whitney Young. He writes about Bayard Rustin rallying support, all of them saying, you know, we stand with Israel, we stand with Israel. And he talks about the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He talks about core going back and forth on the issue, depending on who's in charge, Floyd McKissick, Roy Ennis. He talks about the Nation of Islam. He talks about the Republic of New Africa saying that we stand with the Palestinians. The line has been drawn and then he says though but this thing changes over the arc of the 60s into the 1970s he talks about the congressional black office coming members of it to the national black convention in 1972 in gary indiana Barack on one side and then you got jesse jackson who's back and forth out of the region on on the side closer to baraka and then you got richard hatcher and them backing up you got shirley chisholm like oh, I, I, I gotta distance myself from this statement that has come out of the national black Convention, why? Because the Arab-Israeli conflict becomes a fault line. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? But the 1967 defeat, the 1967-68 6 war where the Palestinians, you know, one of the things he writes about, he says, what you see emerging is this idea among many Palestinians that we got to do this for ourselves. Nobody can protect us. But that is, a, that is an underlying theme in the journey of Palestine. We talked about an office Hours, I did bring a copy of this book, Rashid Khalidi's book, The Hundred Years War on Palestine. This book here, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017. And there are a number of different books on the region. But what you see is there is a sentiment that these people who we call Palestinians, who have a history that goes back thousands of years, not hundreds of years, will say, you know, we've never been secure. It certainly wasn't under the Ottoman Turks. certainly wasn't under the British protectorate. And it certainly wasn't after the creation of the state of israel and it hasn't been since because you've got governments arab governments in the region who you know the united states pushing hard for egypt and the Saudis, you know to normalize relations with 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 israel okay well so what about the palestinians well you yeah, I don't talk about the palestinians well you know they'll figure it out they'll figure it out okay so in in in, in black power of palestine what he does is trace this thing You've got people's liberation movements that have emerged after World War II. And so people who have been oppressed, indigenous people of this hemisphere, people who've been oppressed, you know, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, people who've been oppressed on the continent of Africa, people who've been oppressed in other places, whether it be Vietnam or Korea, people are looking at where the, what they call solidarity politics. And the Palestinians are like, uh, us too. And they're saying, yeah, yeah, you too, you too. Is everybody from the Black Panthers? you know, whether it be Eldritch Cleaver and Kathleen Cleaver in Algeria, whether it be Stortley Carmichael going to Palestine, whether it be Muhammad Ali going to Palestine and going to the camps at the height of his fame and power, whether it be a, a, a decade plus before, 1959, the same 1959 when Martin Luther King and Coretta King are down there. Guess who else is over there? Malcolm X and who else? Elijah Muhammad visiting the Palestinians, raising this issue over and over again, but you got the so-called mainstream black leaders saying we got a balance. We got to have a balancing act. Why? Because we want to be able to work against racism. We're going to be able to fight racism in the United States, but we also want to avoid unnecessary criticism that can dilute our effectiveness in fighting racism. When I look at this magnificent monument and, and this edifice and this complex, and here go some young people now getting off a white van, going to visit the museum, which opens at nine o'clock. You know, I think to myself, how do you raise money for this? How do you keep this going? Because it's a fine line you got to walk. People don't like to be told that this is a white supremacist country, they just don't like to be told that there's a, you know international network of settler colonialism. Oh, He's me, brother. what's up? Hey, this is the hey, brother, We've seen the real team, Joe says Kimmy. Oh, what's going on, man? We in your we in your town, boy. <laughs> whoa, whoa, wait a minute! You saw the shirt, right? Oh,
0: you better you better wear that. Well, I, was, I was gonna anyway, put that one over there. All right,
1: right. Oh. you you want to get yes. I see you, man. We going over there. Okay. Good oh, to see man. you, man. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Don't you love this out? My... So. What? One of the three Pyramid Brothers. Last time I saw that brother, we was in the shadow of the pyramids. <laughs> oh, look at this.
0: I'm telling you, so no, it happens so every.
1: Karen, like, it happens so every day? That man from Montgomery, that brother right there, me and him and his two comrades, we were sitting there at their dinner talking about how do you raise black boys to be men? And these brothers got some ideas that are incredible. We sitting at the pyramids. Next time I see him, we over here at this monument at for that. our people who have been. Ch- this is what I'm talking. About. That's the Can glo- this we is are- the work? This is yeah. the work you lay laid out.
0: <laughs> but it makes us what we should be—not not, not separate borders, yes! but wherever we are in the world, we are family. We are we are part of the same. We're part of the same tribe, you know, of humanity. We're part of the same tribe. Yes, Why? right.
1: That's exactly it. right.
0: Love it. That's mm-hmm. right.
1: So 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 I I'll, I'll wrap it up. I mean, and and, and I think. You know, ancestors don't make any mistake and they are thick through here. We're going to go by and see the Rosa Parks Museum, the Dexter Avenue Parish. Of course, there's so many places here. We may pass by a few. There's Hank Williams got a damn museum over here, which I ain't mad. You're cheating heart. I'm I'm not a big Hank Williams fan, certainly not one of his sons. But, you know, we may go by here. Also, uh, of course, there's the uh, all the other places we have to go as well, because this is where the Michael Murray bus boy kind of went down. And I swear, you go by, you, you you cross some of these streets and go around some of these corners, and you swear you back in 1955. Which for me is not necessarily a bad thing. But yeah, I'm gonna wind this up. But there's so much more. I would I would really encourage folk to read that book because he talks about the Black Arts Movement. People saying we have to write poetry and prose that deals with this. Askia Muhammad Jaray, Barack. I'm sorry, uh, Amir Baraka, you know, Hakeem Aboudi, Hoyt Fuller, John Johnson publishing Black World, which was the great magazine edited by Hoyt Fuller, formerly known as Negro Digest, until they come in hard on this question of Palestinian self-determination. And John Johnson, he uh, cuts off funding for Black World, Negro Digest and fires Hoyt Fuller. And of course, the apocryphal testament to that, and Jonathan Fenderson writes about this in his book on White Fuller, is that uh, Johnson was threatened. He was threatened by corporate interests that say, if you continue to allow these people to support Palestinian self-determination, we'll cut off your money. Now, we know, of course, Ethel Minor, who, you know, I saw we talked about her uh, when she made transition months ago, uh, maybe last summer. Elfo uh, Miner, who was uh, the editor of the SNCC newsletter, he writes about SNCC in this book. And how SNCC came out strong on Palestinian self-determination and, that, and the money, which had already begun to trickle, gets cut off. And I saw Elfo Miner at the 50th anniversary of SNCC at Shaw in Raleigh, Raleigh, North Carolina, say, you know, I never meant for that to happen. But they had debated this. How should we stand with these oppressed people in our common humanity? And how do we deal with that? We saw, uh, you know, he writes about Golda Meir, the prime minister, you know, talking about, you know, wh- why aren't black people coming out more in solidarity with uh, the Israelis? And of course, you see uh, Bayard Rustin coming out strong, Ward Wilkins, and 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 and, and, and um, Whitney Young coming out, but they're not coming out necessarily based on what's going on in Israel. They're coming out With an eye towards strengthening Black Jewish relationships in the United States. So, really, this becomes about domestic policy and foreign policy. Can Black people have an opinion on foreign policy? We always have an opinion on foreign policy. Do we share that opinion? Not always. And when you see somebody who is a Black leader who says something, a lot of Black people in the governance formation looking like, okay, I could care less or not care, or maybe I agree, maybe I disagree. But what you don't have is an accurate gauge of governance opinion. How are you going to do that? because you don't want an accurate gauge of governance opinion. What you want is a social structure that maintains your interests, whatever those interests are. And so, you know, just thinking about how, um, you know, Jesse Jackson tours Palestine, going through Israel, Andrew Young beating up on both sides when he's the UN ambassador during the Carter administration and Wyatt T. Walker coming out and saying we're for self-determination and roasting the hell out of Vernon Jordan. When Vernon Jordan makes his statement, Y T. Walker says, "See, I told y'all, this is more evidence that the National Urban League is not for black liberation. In other words, Negroes in America should not have an opinion on foreign policy. So you know, as we kind of think about where we are and I think about you know this question of you know who sh- who should we identify with or who do we identify with, And then we think about that in the shadow of these ancestor monuments these ancestor memorials, it just comes down to this. Even if you haven't suffered, but if you have suffered, if there's a record of your suffering, you should always stand with those who are in harm's way. And it shouldn't matter what their color is, it shouldn't matter what their culture is, it shouldn't matter what their posture is. And those who would say, "In because of my politics or because of my power, because of my position, I value killing over the common kind of humanity, then you should ask yourself how you should approach that person because there are other interests at work and people are trying to cancel people and it's like. Uh-uh, no,
0: no, I say, ah, I'm, I'm uh, getting ready to maybe see this film and, and the storytelling and narratives, but more the reading, the reading, the reading, we have to know you can't just have an opinion without knowledge. You know, uh, I see a lot of folks in YouTube comments. Well, that's my opinion. But is it rooted in something that you know? Have you studied? (laughs) Have you traveled? Have you talked to various different people? I don't, just having an opinion is not good enough today. It's not good enough. As a matter of fact, it's dangerous because now you're putting out things that are not true and we got to stick to the truth. And I I just want to hold up um, this movie that a lot of people are talking about. Um, Martin Scorsese's film, um, what is it? of the Flower Moon. And yes. uh, he was recently interviewed and he said he was attracted to the story, which of course he knew very little about. He said, I'd heard about it a long time ago. And for me at this stage in my life, I've been fascinated by Indigenous people. And I've been learning over the years because I grew up in the 40s and 50s and Indigenous people, even his language, right? Because we grew up, they were cowboys and Indians, even in our generation. How about leaders. that, how about uh, that? Uh, but that he's able to shift language. The indigenous people were represented a certain way in film, it was John Wayne, you know, it was, it was the cowboys and Indians, Tonto, and, and they were scalpers and, you know, they were demonized. He said, but just by the attempt in the early 50s that tried to make a change, Devil's Doorway, Broken Arrow, uh, Drumbeat, Apache and others, he said, in this case, uh, the Native Americans were the heroes, uh, although they were played by whites, so, so, with this, he's trying to change the narrative. And he said he was fascinated by the FBI. We get to see J. Edgar Hoover in here differently. But I'm also thinking there's a whole story that needs to be told, maybe by one of us, about Sarah, Hello. Rector, Sarah Rector and those enslaved yes. Africans in that region, and which is why those yes. Native American, those indigenous people who have be be, been able to find oil. But that oil was also, also the thing that propelled Black Wall Street. Like, there's a through line, a through of, line. of narratives and stories and histories and truths. That that have That's to be right. unearthed so that we can have honest dialogue around our common humanity, which is what today right. you know for peace and that that you know the the million plus people and on all sides of the of the the borders uh, that <laughs> that we don't lose but, any more life.
1: Well, I mean, and that you're right, and I think I, I, I will say this, and I plan on seeing Kills of the Flower too, was based on the book, but Martin Scorsese is not a he, I mean, he no,
0: to me, he's not. you know.
1: We know that, right? I mean, and we, we, I know you're not saying that at all. And, I, and I'm just saying it yeah, as well that we have to always keep in mind self-determination has to be the thing we lead with. And we think about that because all of the narratives on CNN, and New York Times, all these white facing commercial news, entertainment media outlets that are narrating this like it's some kind of sporting event. You know, as you said, there are stories that we need to be able to know. People say, well, that's my opinion. Okay, that's your opinion. But as you said, do you know? I mean, the Afro-Palestinians, for many years, making Hajj, going back to the 12th century or the 11th century, Mansa Musa and them coming through. You stop at Al-Aqsa. That's the third most holy sh- site in uh, in Islam. And many people stayed there. And they began, then you got an Afro-Arab community. There's an Afro-Arab community in Jerusalem. There's one in the West Bank. You have people there, some of whom have been there for centuries. In World War I, the British conscripted people from their empire and close empires. So you had people who were brought into that region, brought to that region from Nigeria and Chad and Sudan and Senegal, who have descendants who are now Afro-Palestinians, not to mention the African Jews the Ethiopian Jews, the better Israel, the Falasha, what is their position? Any, any, Anybody in here who is Falasha or who knows anybody who's Falasha, I remember one time a bunch of young people came, they were in their 20s, they were part of the Israeli military but they were Ethiopian Jews and they talked about the straight, naked white supremacist racism in Israel against them but they are expected to defend. What does it mean when an Afro-Israeli with a gun shows up in Gaza in the ground invasion and faces an Afro-Palestinian. This is what the hell, there's not two sides to this. There are many sides to this. And this young person did not sign up to shoot somebody who looks like them, who had nothing to do with anything, particularly when the place that gave them the gun and told them to shoot somebody calls them the N word in all kinds of languages in Israel. This is the challenge we have to have. And so these stories have to be told by the people. And so, you know, the narratives are complicated. I mean, again, I, I don't have mixed feelings about this rituals place, but I do have very much mixed feelings about how we narrate ourselves. When you hear people say America, love it and leave it, or go back to Africa, what the what you what they're really saying is we won, deal with it. Well, who is the weep? Whiteness, we won, deal with it. They don't have the courage to define weep mm-hmm. or to embrace the whiteness at the center. The non-whites are voicing aspiration, as if moments like that are tantamount to a loyalty oath. I stand with that's an aspirational voicing. It's not a one based on memory. The trick is that there's no such thing. No amount of violence in the asymmetrical war against African people over the last 500 years can make you accepted in a system that must rely on your dehumanization and I don't have any ambiveness on the fact that you may drop a little few references to Africa, but when you build your whole narrative of who you are around an ass whipping, or perpetual traumatized ass whipping, I'm not sure you can get to your full humanity. I don't care whether you're an African person in Alabama or Palestinian. If you if you anchor your whole identity around we've been getting our ass whipped or you getting your ass, then I'm not sure you can find your way into a full humanity. That's a difficult thing, and we got to learn that as African people. You know? I mean, we can't build our identity on we took our ass with them. Because I'm telling you right there, them Negroes at the Tuskegee game tonight, they're not building their identity around we took an ass <laughs> we hand out ass weapons. sometimes with white plastic folding chairs <laughs> no, no question I'm, I'm going to stop <laughs> uh, listen
0: so go get all of the hugs and love that you deserve out there sir and tell everyone I said hello that we
1: deserve oh, I'm going to tell don't, them and you, don't, yeah. yeah. you,
0: proxy. <laughs> you proxy in all of my love I appreciate it no
1: question I love you
0: thank you I love you